And a warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us during a topsy-turvy week for all. We're obviously eyeing World Cup football while we start to deck the hall, grab presents from the mall and cook the Thanksgiving butterball. We're very American on the show today. Butterball, for those that don't know, is the world's largest turkey producer. And their CEO will join us this hour to talk all things bird, especially when food prices are beyond absurd. Butterball firing up its 24-hour consumer hotline with cooking tips and this year, of course, how to stretch that bird budget too. And yet more food for thought today. The CEO of Miso Robotics, the creator of the Flippy Kitchen Assistant, will also be here on the show. How robots can help restaurants cope with labour shortages and, of course, the ongoing debate of all robots like Flippy steal human jobs longer term. We will be discussing shortly on the show. Now from talk about food to a more positive investor mood, at least for now. The bull's hoping for a nourishing wall Street open after Monday's pullback. Tesla was the big S&P loser on Monday, falling 7% to a two-year low, in fact. Wow, take a look at that chart. Disney, a rare delight, up 6% on news of the management shakeup that sees Bob Iger return to the helm. Iger wasting little time putting his stamp on things or back on things, firing a top executive and announcing a fresh restructuring. The very latest on the eye of the Iger coming up shortly on the show. And one thing connecting Disney and Tesla, exposure, of course, to China. Hong Kong shares falling for a fifth straight session as China expands COVID lockdowns and testing requirements amid a fresh surge in COVID cases. And fears of softer Chinese growth would normally put pressure on oil prices in anticipation of weaker demand. However, crude is firmer at this moment as Saudi Arabia denies reports that OPEC is eyeing a production increase. Hmm, now, that would be interesting timing. Let's talk about China, though, and China's worsening COVID outlook and its global economic impact remains our top story today. Beijing now tightening its COVID restrictions to protect against that recent spike in new infections. A negative PCR test needs to be taken within 48 hours. That's now required to enter public venues and use public transportation. As Christy Lustout reports. There is a surge in COVID-19 infection across China with outbreaks in multiple Chinese cities, from the Chinese capital in Shijiazhuang in the north to the economic engine of Guangzhou in the south and the megacity Chongqing in the country's southwest. On Monday, China reported 26,824 new local cases of the virus. That is the highest daily COVID cases reported since mid-April. And although these case numbers are very low compared to global standards, China has been holding tight to its zero COVID policy. This policy of mass testing, snap lockdowns and border controls, which has disrupted both lives and livelihoods. And that policy is testing residents across the country. In Beijing's most populous district, Chaoyang, which is home to nearly three and a half million people, officials have urged residents there, including students and workers, to stay home. According to the deputy director of the Beijing Center for Disease Prevention and Control, quote, the number of cases discovered outside quarantine is increasing rapidly at present. And there are hidden transmission risks from multiple places. The pressure on Beijing has further increased. Also in the north, Shijiazhuang is undergoing five days of mass testing as the city urges its residents not to leave unless necessary. Now, shopping centers and entertainment venues are closed. Dine-in services and in-class learning suspended. And the tough measures there come just days after the city relaxed COVID restrictions, according to state media. 
In Guangzhou, the Baiyun District is under lockdown until Friday. Now, the district is home to the Guangzhou Baiyun International Airport. And on WeChat, local health authorities said this, quote, the risk of social transmission of the epidemic in Baiyun District has continued to increase and the prevention and control situation is grim. Last week, scores of angry residents in another Guangzhou district took to the streets to protest China's tough anti-pandemic policy. Chongqing, China's biggest city with a population of over 30 million, is also battling an outbreak. Last week, the city government announced that residents are not allowed to leave the city unless necessary. As winter is coming, COVID-19 cases across China are set to rise. The state-run People's Daily warns that the pandemic may worsen, writing in an editorial this, quote, the situation of pandemic control is severe. We must maintain confidence that we will win, resolutely overcome issues such as insufficient understanding and insufficient preparation, unquote. Earlier this month, Chinese authorities eased parts of its pandemic policy, and Goldman Sachs says China could start to reopen the April-June quarter of next year. But experts are warning that a full reopening requires higher vaccination rates, a change in messaging, and broader access to medical care. And given the rise in cases nationwide, it will be even harder for China to unwind its nearly three-year-long zero-COVID policy. Christy Lustout, CNN. Hong Kong. Mm, that's the key. For more on this, Selena Wang joins us now from Beijing. Selena, good to have you with us. And I believe now in Beijing and Shanghai, in order to get into restaurants, as I mentioned, and to use public transport, you now need to be within 48 hours of having a PCR test. Um, we know that if you relax restrictions, cases will rise. This is the way that COVID works. How are people dealing with it, Selena, both with the prospect of more lockdowns and also, as you've been describing, the mental health impact of, of, of people fearing COVID itself? Well, Julia, it's everything that you're talking about combined. It's this uncertainty of not knowing when all of this is going to end. If you're able to just live your daily life, get those essentials you need, send your kids to school. If you're going to have to be stuck in lockdown, it's stock up and prepare for the worst. And these stories of tragedy that we've been discussing and that I've been reporting on for your show is these stories of tragedy and suffering that have been repeating over and over again for three years in cities across China because these harsh lockdowns continue. When those buildings, communities, or cities get sealed, off, there are many cases of people dying because they can't get that emergency help fast enough. In fact, authorities, Julia, have acknowledged many of those cases, but each time they blame it on the execution of the zero COVID policy rather than the policy itself. And of course, everywhere we go, we have to have that recent PCR test. Now it's gone from 72 hours to 48 hours. So that means we've got to line up more regularly. The largest district here has urged residents to stay at home. The city has shut down many parks, malls, and museums. The city is very quiet. There are many areas that are selectively going into lockdown where cases have been found. Of course, you've also got to show that health code on your smartphone app that allows the government to track and surveil virtually all 1.4 billion people. The government did announce that they want wanted to become more targeted and scientific when it comes to their approach for COVID. That got the markets and investors really excited that there could be a reopening right on the horizon. But the reality is, is that these local governments are still under pressure to keep COVID cases low. And the only tactics they have to rely on are these brute force tactics of mass testing, of quarantining, of locking down. So there is no easy exit from this, especially when you have a population where the elderly population is still lagging 
behind in their vaccination rates. And to your point, the messaging in China has still been for several years that COVID is very dangerous, long COVID is dangerous. So for many people, there's still a fear about getting COVID in addition to the restrictions that come with getting COVID. Because if you get COVID, you become a pariah, basically. You have to go to a quarantine facility, your close contacts have to go as well, your whole community or neighborhood could all go into lockdown just because you got COVID. Yeah, it's a pressure cooker, a stress pressure cooker. And to your point, Selena, I think perfectly said, there's just no easy exit. Um, Thank you for your reporting. Thank you for being there. Um, It's always great to have you with us. Okay, let's move on to Indonesia now. Rescue teams are desperately searching for survivors under the rubble after Monday's powerful earthquake. The death toll has now risen to nearly 270 people. Paula Hancock joins us now. Paula, what more do we know about those that may still be alive, that may be trapped in the ongoing efforts of the rescue workers? Well, Julia, there is this, this frantic ongoing rescue operation where you see teams trying to uh, move rubble, trying to move effectively what were houses and buildings that have collapsed potentially uh, onto people. Now, the, the reason uh, that that we have seen these buildings collapse is because this was a particularly shallow earthquake. It was 5.6 magnitude, but it was only 10 kilometres deep. Now, of course, the the closer it is to the the Earth's surface, then uh, that means there is more damage. Now, unfortunately, we also uh, know that there were dozens, according to Save the Children, dozens of schools uh, that were impacted. It happened at about 1.20 in the afternoon. So schools were in session, people and children were in their classes. And we heard from West Java's governor that the majority of those who died were children. Uh, Also understanding that as the earthquake hit, there were many children that were running out uh, of these schools, many of which have been impacted. Now, The president himself has been to the uh, particular area that is affected and he he has said that there will be compensation for those who have damaged or lost their homes. Uh, One local mayor said there's something like 22,000 homes which have been destroyed. We don't have an exact figure uh, on schools at this point, but obviously that does appear to have been one of the most devastating parts of this earthquake. And he also pointed out, Joker Widodo, that he wanted the rebuild to be earthquake earthquake-resistant buildings. This is not something that that happens just every so often. This is uh, a a prevailing problem in Indonesia. It uh, it sits on the the so-called ring of fire. This is uh, a band across the Pacific Ocean where there are frequent earthquakes and volcanic activity. And once again, we have seen just how damaging it can be. Now, the particular area in West Java district that this happened is, it's about 75 kilometers southeast of the capital, Jakarta, but it is a populous area. It's a mountainous area. And the concern now, of course, is given the amount of aftershocks, whether the structures that are still standing are safe. We saw from one local media that they uh, were filming hundreds of patients being treated in the car park, the parking lot of the hospital, because there were concerns about the infrastructure not being safe. And of course, the weather, if it does continue with wet weather, there is a concern of mudslides. Julia? Yes. Hearts with all those involved, and um, we'll continue to follow the rescue workers' efforts. Paula, thank you for that. Paula Hancock's there. 
Okay, let's move on. Investors seem eager for Iger's return as top mouse at Disney, and his comeback is already seeing some big changes. One day after taking back the reins, Bob Iger announced the firing of the company's media and entertainment distribution chief, Kareem Daniel, and a new restructuring is coming in the coming weeks. Quote, Iger says Daniel's exit was part of a new structure that puts more decision-making back in the hands of our creative teams and rationalises costs. Quote, CNN's Fred Pelota joins us once again on this story. Um, that quote was interesting. It sort of placed two very important and disgruntled audiences, I think. Workers who believed that their creativity was being stifled and investors that were concerned about rising costs. Yeah, so basically look at it this way. The Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution Chief Kareem Daniel is out. What is DMED? That's what they call it, Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution. The best way to kind of in layman terms, it was Disney's way to focus in on streaming. Disney always was kind of this kingdom with all these little fiefdoms of, you know, you had Marvel and studios and and then you had the parks over here and then you had merchandising over here. And basically now what happened was during Chapek's reign, they as a company, Chapek as the chief, was like everything is going to funnel through streaming. Everything is about streaming here. We are a streaming company. We're going to focus on streaming. Now Iger has returned and basically said, no, we're going to put it back to the way things were when I was kind of running the place, which is really talking about these macro trends that are happening across Hollywood. It's almost kind of like Hollywood is waking up out of this, you know, streaming at any cost kind of drunken stupor. And now they're a little bit hungover. Their house is a little bit of a mess and they're missing about $1.5 billion. So they're just trying to figure out what the next steps are. But it looks like the next steps is kind of returning to the way things were when Iger was running the place. Yes, and we shall continue to see those kind of changes, I think. Frank, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Frank Pelota there. Okay, on to a major footballing upset at the World Cup. Saudi Arabia shocking Lionel Messi's Argentina, beating them in a 2-1 win. Yes, you heard me right. If only we could stick to the sport. But, of course, at the start of the tournament, overshadowed by Qatar's refusal to allow players to wear armbands supporting LGBTQ rights. Just listen to what the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has said about that fact. One of the most powerful things about football, about soccer, is its potential to bring the world together. It's always concerning from my perspective when we see any restrictions on freedom of expression. Uh, It's especially so when the expression is for diversity and for inclusion. Um, And in my judgment, at least, no one on a football pitch should be forced to choose between supporting these values and playing for their team. And Amanda Davies joins us now from Doha. Amanda, I think it's important that we keep emphasising the importance of coming back to these rainbow restrictions. But I don't think um, sports fans around the world would ever forgive me if I didn't talk about what I heard Alex in the last hour talk about one as, as one of the biggest World Cup upsets of all time. Saudi Arabia beating Argentina. Let's talk about that first. Let's talk about that. I can tell you, Julia, there literally were shockwaves sent around Souk Waqif behind me. The rumble, the cheers, the gasps, the, the celebrations that 
took place when that final whistle went. This is Argentina, a side who went into that game today, 36 games unbeaten, dating all the way back to June 2019. And of course, it was an Argentina with Lionel Messi, the seven-time Ballon d'Or winner. So many people talking about this as potentially his year to finally win this major piece of silverware that has eluded them. People were writing Saudi Arabia off. I don't think that's unfair to say. But even when Messi put them ahead, put Argentina ahead from the penalty spot. Saudi were not giving up. They were disciplined. They were organized. They were creative. They were full of energy. And there we have them uh, securing this famous, famous victory. To put it into context, this is a side 50 places below Argentina in the world rankings who were thumped 5-0 by Russia in their opening game of the last World Cup in 2018. They haven't made it out of the group stages um, at all in their last four attempts at the World Cup. But now their fans, their sizable contingent of fans here in Doha, I have to say, are daring to dream that maybe, just maybe, this might be the year that they emulate the performance of their famous team from 1994 who reached the round of 16. There is still a very long way to go, of course. This is just the first of three matches for each of these sides in the group stages. But Saudi Arabia couldn't have got it off to a better start. Argentina, a worse one. As far as the organisers are concerned, this is just the kind of footballing story, though, that they were hoping for when the action got underway. It allows all the other teams, all the fans around the world, to dare to dream, to really get invested in this in a football tournament. But, Julia, when you take a step back, the severity of the issues that we're talking about, the seriousness of the rights for the members of the LGBTQ plus community, the migrant workers here, that will not be removed from the agenda. People will still keep talking about them as they absolutely should. Yeah, absolutely. We, we can talk about the sport, but we'll talk about the other issues too. But um, one would presume there's going to be one or two more Saudi Arabian uh, sports fans uh, heading over to uh, Qatar in the, in the coming days to, uh, to watch their team play. We shall see. Amanda, great to have you with us. Thank you. Amanda Davies there in Doha. All right, straight ahead. Two fortunate turkeys getting a presidential pardon. Are the birds not so lucky as they head to the Thanksgiving table thanks to Butterball? We'll speak to the CEO of the world's largest turkey producer right after this. Plus, a restaurant's next helping hand may be from a robot. The CEO of Miso Robotics is talking about filling tough jobs in the kitchen. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where it's time to talk turkey. With Thanksgiving in the United States just two days away now, the big bird is about to become the star of tables across America. But this year's feast is going to cost a staggering 20% more because of inflation, snags in the supply chain and bad weather. Turkey prices have jumped 24% since last year. Making mashed potatoes will cost you around 20% more in the United States. And key ingredients for that perfect pie for dessert, well, they're up apparently between 23 
and 75% too. Now, Butterball is the world's largest turkey producer, supplying one third of all Thanksgiving turkeys. The company exports two to over 45 different countries, but it's had to raise prices after its production costs nearly doubled. CEO Jay Jandrin says he expects to sell more turkeys than last year, but the selection may be limited. And joining us now is Jay Jandrin. He is the CEO of Butterball. Jay, fantastic to have you on the show. So we have to talk about the two crucial things. First is the cost and the second is availability and supply. What can you tell us about this year? Well, as you mentioned, certainly we've had to deal with inflation as Mm. many other companies have. Everything has gone up. Uh, But the one really good thing about uh, turkeys at Thanksgiving is how heavily they're featured at the retailer. So some of the numbers you you, uh, just quoted uh, actually aren't fully representative of what we see during the feature activity. In fact, we're just uh, looking at some Farm Bureau uh, numbers that they just put out uh, shows that the whole turkey prices were, were on average dropped from $1.11 to $0.95 cents a pound uh, in the last week as we see more and more of those retailers uh, heavily discounting the product as they customarily do during the time. So that's certainly good news for the consumer. Uh, also, with regard to supply, uh, we are actually shipping more turkeys this year than we did last year, which is great news since, as you mentioned, we uh, have a third of the uh, all of the turkeys on the Thanksgiving table are a butterball. Uh, but from an industry standpoint as well, we expect full supply, uh, no shortages. We've been talking very closely to our retailers, and we understand that they're in good shape right now. Sales are brisk. They're selling through, but there are no shortages of product. See, this is really important because you never know what to um, what to expect. I've seen some commentators suggesting that um, some consumers could end up paying double for the price of their turkey compared to last year. But what you're saying is actually we're seeing some cost cutting as we head ever closer to Thanksgiving. And, and to your point, um, zero trouble with supply. So that should be a comfort, I think, to consumers that want to eat turkey in a couple of days' time. Absolutely. You know, we know mm. from and talking to our consumers uh, shortly before the holiday, that 90% of them planned on celebrating the holiday and 85% of those uh, planned on having turkey as a centerpiece uh, for the meal. So it is certainly good news with that uh, volume of people uh, looking to have turkey on their table. um, We're certainly happy to see that uh, they aren't going to be disappointed. Yes, I'm sure they agree with you. Um, I also mentioned you export to over 45 other different countries. And I think one of the big themes that we've been discussing this year has been the relative strength of the US dollar. I just wondered what sort of demand you're seeing from elsewhere in the world, particularly as most of the world recovers from COVID and people get back together again, which I think is an important point. What are you seeing from demand elsewhere in the world? Well, that is a great point. We, we are seeing people celebrate more both in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and domestic, uh, domestically and uh, overseas. Uh, from an export standpoint, though, um, demand is strong. Uh, the brand is very, very strong in other countries, um, even though the brand is particularly synonymous with the holiday here. Uh, we find a lot of people looking for Butterball uh, brand in other countries, Mexico, Central America, Caribbean. Those are our primary exporting countries, but we do ship uh, to many other countries around the world. One of the other things that I love about what you do, and you've been doing it for many years now, is that you run a hotline for people needing help, advice. Uh, I know sort of jokingly emotional support as well, because these, um, this run now for the next month can be quite um, stressful, I think, for people as well. And I believe it runs from now to December 24th. Um, just talk to me about the hotline for people and, and how many people you get on average each year calling in and, and asking for help. 
of various forms, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, we're in our 41st year of the Turkey Talk line, which yeah. is which is great to, that's, to have that longevity. But it's been there for decades providing support to people who are uh, feeling rushed in a crunch trying to figure out how to get things done. One of the things that we found through the pandemic, we had a lot of new hosts for the holidays because gatherings were smaller. They weren't able to travel. Maybe mom or grandma wasn't cooking the turkey like they were before, uh, and they had to do it. So we helped a lot of people through that. Uh, we'll see uh, in just a matter of a couple of weeks, well over 100,000 callers. And in fact, just uh, got news uh, from our folks at the talk line this morning that uh, they are, uh, calls are very, very brisk uh, right now. They're getting a lot of people calling in, but they're there to help. And they're going to you know, they're gonna talk them through whatever they need to do to yeah. make sure that that was exactly what they need. What's the craziest question you've ever had? Uh, well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of questions about how to find <laughs> Buying turkeys in the bathtub while they're bathing their kids and that sort of thing. So it, it's all over wow. the board. Wow. Yes, because, I mean, that's something I learned when I came to the United States. Is people do, some people do put it into an entire vat of oil. So, um, yes, uh, exciting for me. Um, you know, something I want to ask, we had the CEO of Eat Just on the show in the past week, and I don't know whether you've heard from them, but they, they talk about growing meat, and in this case, chicken, as cells. So it was never actually a full bird. They simply take the cells and they grow the meat and they're trying to say it's a, you know, a more ethical, sustainable way of eating meat in the future. Jay, I just wanted to get your view on how, um, how you view that and whether you think that is in any way a, a sort of viable substitute or a competition perhaps for you guys on what you do one day. Well, alternatives are certainly something that we keep in our eye on, but that's not right. anything that we expect to be an imminent uh, issue uh, to our business. Uh, but you know, there there is a reason to look for different ways to to feed people, which is which is great. Uh, we're a growing population, so we're always looking for ways to make sure that people have uh, valuable uh, food on their on their table that is. Uh, uh, not going to be too expensive for them to afford. Uh, and, and right now, certainly, uh, the typical animal agriculture way of growing meat uh, is the most economical way to get food on the table. And we're going to continue to do that, uh, make sure that we can feed as many people as possible. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I read between the lines. I mean, even he was saying it's going to take six to 10 years before even they can sort of balance the books, never mind scaling this up. Um, it sort of plays to a TikTok generation, though. And I know you're on TikTok now, too, to your point about sort of playing to younger people and those that might be welcoming people around the table that perhaps haven't ever before. Jay, talk to me about the TikTok message. Yeah, well, that's something we really discovered uh, through the pandemic. Uh, yeah. With Again, with so many new hosts uh, for, for Thanksgiving, we realized that we needed to really reach out to those folks and talk to them. Uh, they are inexperienced cooks largely, uh, but they're foodies. Uh, so there's a great opportunity for us to help coach them and get them along and, and uh, show them how to use turkey products on their everyday menu. Certainly, it's a, it's a very healthy option for them from a protein standpoint. But mm. the key is making sure that we speak to them where they're listening to their information. And TikTok is a great example where the amount of time that the younger generation spend uh, getting their media, uh, we want to make sure that we reach out to them where they are. And so that's been a big driver in how we've been advertising. Yes. And to your point, as a company, accessing audiences wherever they are and um, digital first or at some part of the business being digital first. Jay, great to have you on. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. And I think a message to all our viewers is no one's cooking turkeys in the bath, please. Overall yes. message. Thank yes, there we thank go. <laughs> That's the takeaway too. Um, Jay, thank you. The CEO of Butterball there. Okay, stay with First Move. More after this. 
And welcome back to First Move to Ukraine now, where an area near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has again come under intense shelling. A Ukrainian official says 60 Russian shells fell overnight in the Nikopol district, each side blaming each other for the attacks close to the plant. Meanwhile, Ukrainians endured more blackouts on Monday. The head of the country's biggest energy supplier says unplanned outages could continue until the end of March. Meanwhile, CNN has obtained intercepted calls from a Russian soldier revealing the desperate situation facing Putin's forces on the front lines in Ukraine. And a warning, some of the images in Matthew Chance's report may be disturbing. As Russia's military highlights its barrage of Ukraine, CNN has obtained exclusive recordings of a Russian soldier describing the brutal reality of life on the front lines. The commander's position was shelled, so he packed up and moved further back. But what about us? Aren't we humans too? The Russian soldier was recorded phoning his girlfriend back home, according to Ukrainian intelligence, and telling her candidly about the severe military setback suffered in the two months since he arrived. We had 96 people in our unit, but now there are less than 50. You don't know what to expect here. Sometimes there's friendly fire and idiots shoot at us because they don't see our coordinates. But it is advancing Ukrainian forces that are the major threat, compounding low morale with high bloodshed. Ukrainian officials now reacting to this extraordinary video of Russian soldiers apparently surrendering, geolocated by CNN, to a recently liberated town in eastern Ukraine. Come on out, one by one, a Ukrainian soldier calls out. Then a short burst of gunfire before the video cuts off. Later, a Ukrainian military drone shows what appears to be the same men in pools of blood. The Kremlin says it's an execution. But Ukraine says the soldiers feigned surrender and fired at the Ukrainians, accusing Russia of its own war crime. No one disputes the horror. It's unclear if the dead Russians were regular troops or deployed as part of the Kremlin's partial mobilisation seen here earlier this year. But the soldier recorded on the phone indicates he was recently conscripted, complaining bitterly at being unable to leave the war zone. Being mobilized is crap. Nobody can go home until Putin announces the order. There's no way to return. And if we weren't here, they, the Ukrainians, would already be at our borders. They would shell Moscow, Yekaterinburg, shell everything. And that constant threat of Ukrainian attack is having a terrifying effect in particular drone strikes, which appear to have left the soldier particularly nervous. My nerves are on edge. I'm afraid of every rustle. Every bang, every click makes me drop to the ground. In Russian-controlled eastern Ukraine, the funerals are underway for more of those killed on the brutal front line. Deaths, Ukrainian officials insist, would never have happened but for Russia's war. Matthew Chance, CNN, Kiev. 
Meanwhile, former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has compared what's happening in Ukraine to the spirit of London during the Blitz when the city faced German aerial bombardment. Speaking at an event marking the first anniversary of CNN Portugal, he told our Richard Quest Russia's actions are strengthening, not weakening Ukrainian resolve, and he pleaded for allies to keep supplying equipment. We need to supply them with better artillery, but we also, frankly, should be giving them um, not just helicopters, but fixed-wing aircraft that can go fast enough to take out the drones. And you don't need very sophisticated planes to do it. Uh, the Ukrainians uh, came to see me about it. You, you could do it with Spitfires. We don't make Spitfires anymore. But uh, you, you just need a plane that can go a few hundred miles an hour. If you can't get even that element of escalation. What on earth is going to happen in the depths of winter where they're, I mean, assuming it's a, if it's a cold winter in Europe where citizens are facing recession and they say, oh, for, why are we doing this? You know, we support Ukraine, but enough's enough. How do you keep populations in Europe on side? Well, you, 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 you come to very, very influential audiences in places like Lisbon, uh, and, and, you, and you, you try to get your message across. Because I agree with you, it's going to be, it's going to be a tough one. But I, I happen to think that the, uh, the Ukrainian resolve is being strengthened by the, the attack on their, on, their, on their infrastructure. I mean, remember what happened to London in the Blitz. Uh, it, it, it didn't lead to a collapse in morale. On the, on the contrary, uh, morale was stiffened by the, by the aerial bombardment. And you can see more of that interview on tonight's Quest Means Business. That's 8 p.m. in London, 9 p.m. in Berlin. Okay, coming up after the break, cooking up a storm in the fast food industry for better or worse, a robotics firm that says they can take care of the heavy lift. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Fast food goes back decades, yet in all of that time, the jobs in the kitchen haven't really changed all that much. But of course, finding people to carry them out is getting harder. And it's the dirty, dangerous roles, of course, that workers also love the least. Well, that's where our next guest says robots can come in, like the one that could accurately and evenly prepare fried food. This one in particular, as you can see in front of you, is called Flippy, and it's made by Miso Robotics. They say it can make 45 items from a menu day and night. And current clients include chains like Chipotle, Jack in the Box and White Castle. And now the company's eyeing the international markets. And Mike Bell is the CEO and joins us now. Mike, great to have you with us. The premise, I think, of what you're trying to achieve here of robotics was sort of in the introduction there. You're trying to take out the dull, the dirty and the dangerous tasks and give them to robots. Yeah, for sure. When you look at the restaurant industry compared to other industries, uh, it's significantly behind, maybe a decade or more behind. Other industries such as logistics, warehousing, manufacturing, for sure, have robotics applied to them a, a long time ago. But as you said at, at, the, at the start, when you look back of house at a restaurant, a lot of those tasks haven't changed since the dishwasher, like you know, almost 100 years ago. So we're setting out to change that. 
This is such an important point, actually, and I want to spend a little bit more time on this. What you're saying is we've already seen in other industries automation in certain processes that are labour-saving devices, even for the workers that you have, but it's not happened to the same degree in the fast food industry. Mike, why? Well, the fast food industry, with with full respect, I've been in the industry uh, for a long time, is, is has not historically been... Uh, early adopters of technology. And before the pandemic, there was this thing called the labor gap where there was a shortage in workers. But fast forward to today, it's now commonly referred to as the labor crisis. There's upwards of one and a half million jobs unfilled today. That spurned the industry on to actually get the memo and say, we, we really need to solve this, uh, this, this, this labor problem. And, and Julie, there's really no scenario for solving this in any other way other than automation. There's just no realistic scenario where a million and a half workers are suddenly going to return to these jobs and be happy with them. The nature of the jobs themselves are repetitive, maintained, as you mentioned, somewhat repetitive or somewhat dangerous. And so when you look at back of house and you see humans kind of you know standing over a fry station or whatever, it's hard to imagine that that's going to be that way. And those humans are still be performing those tasks, you know, five or 10 years from now. So we look at it as just a matter of time before all those repetitive tasks are taken over by automation solutions like the ones we're, we're bringing to market. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll come back to that because I think there's still that fear out there of of um, robots replacing humans. And I do want to come back to that. But first, I just want to I want you to explain the technology that we're seeing on our screens now and help us understand. You have Flippy and Flippy Light. You have a beverage dispensing system and a coffee machine. Um, I think some of our regular viewers will recognize Flippy Light because we spoke to Chipotle recently and they were talking about trialing it in some of their California restaurants. Just help us understand the technology and, and what the cost is for a client of installing this kind of technology and, and running it? Yeah, we, we've done everything we can to take the friction out of the buying process because it's quite a new model for restaurant operators to look at it right. and say, okay, bring a robot into operation. So the way that it works is we install essentially overnight where there's a robotic rail and an overhead an arm that hangs on this overhead rail. When we install it, it already understands and knows the environment, the food, when you plug it in to turn it on, it essentially takes over the full cook cycle. So everything from frozen all the way through cooked food. And we price this in a way that makes it really simple back of the napkin math for restaurant operators. And we simply charge a monthly subscription fee. So it's, it's essentially like a software, but it's, it's a robot as a service fee. This makes the capital investment equation much easier for robot for restaurant operators. So they're able to look at it kind of with an equivalent eye towards the cost of human labor. But frankly, the robot is priced in a way that it costs less than the human labor equivalent. But it, of course, performs more reliably around the clock and things like that. So I've seen some stats, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it was from Jack in the Box, and they said Flippy the Robot cost around $50 million to develop. It cost Jack in the Box around $5,000 for installation and then $3,500 per month parental. I mean, I know these things change and, and can change all the time, but in terms of ballpark figures, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. I mean, the equivalent cost of one full-time human being just doing one shift is around $3,000 a month, at least in the state of California when you got you know, the fully loaded wage rate. And so we price it in a way the restaurant operator, big or small, can look at it and say, okay, that is simple math and it's, and it's a win. We, we don't want to put restaurant operators in a situation where they have to have the robot installed for a year or more in order to discover an ROI. Uh, we price it and structure it in such a way that restaurant operators enjoy an ROI in the first month. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, I still hear certainly a reticence to discuss this because of that fear of the perception of perhaps stealing work away from real people and, and handing it over to robots. Are we at the point where we're over that to our earlier conversation, Mike, where we, we sort of have to get over that robot fear of stealing human jobs because there simply aren't the humans available today and willing, let's be clear, to, to do these jobs? Because I still hear that concern, even if the need is real. Yeah, we hear it less and less. Um, years ago, there was just the, the questions were, were quite pointed, and there was, I think, that people were very protected and threatened by, you know, what this can do to jobs. But today, any one of us that goes to a fast food restaurant can, can look, you know, back of the house and see those poor people scurrying and working their tails off because there aren't enough workers. They generally have one or two open slots. So the restaurants aren't operating at full capacity, which means service is suffers. And which means the restaurant uh, operations are frankly a little threatened because they're not able to you know, produce as much food and sell as much. So in all cases, when we install a robot, those workers that previously worked in those stations, they simply get redeployed to other areas of the restaurant. That allows them to prepare and you know, cook more food, which allows the restaurant to sell more food, which means the, the, the operation is frankly um, you know, more economically viable and, and healthier. In a lot of ways, you can look at it as we're, we're protecting jobs by helping to you know, fortify the restaurants themselves. In no instance have we installed a robot and they, and, they, and they send labor home. There simply aren't enough people to go around. Yeah. Um, very quickly, Mike, on this as well. I saw that you're now, um, oh, you announced a collaboration with Amazon Web Services to use some of their technology, RoboMaker, I think, on AWS. And, and this, yeah. I think, is going to help you try and get a, a prototype out there into the public for, for client consumption far quicker. Talk to me, if you can, briefly about that technology and what that's going to mean for your bottom line. Yeah, there's so much technology that is now becoming, you know, very rapidly accessible and affordable and scalable that just simply wasn't available, you know, even, even five years ago. And one of the things that Amazon allows us to do is, is set up a simulation environment, completely digital, so we can test new products. We can understand throughput and cost and cooking accuracy and all kinds of things without having to physically build and put a robot in any environment. There are so many tools like this that are being born today that are bringing kind of this golden era of robotics, not just to the restaurant industry, but to you know, our society as a whole. And it's little pieces of discrete technology that kind of all work together to enable all this to be um, accessible, affordable, and um, really start impacting life. Yeah, more efficient in the end. Mike Bell, great to chat to you, sir. We'll speak again soon, the CEO of Misa Robotics. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. Bitcoin falling below $16,000 per coin to a fresh two-year low. Prices, though, as you can see, steadying somewhat right now. Still, lots of concern that well-known players in the crypto space are teetering following the collapse of FTX and the broader downdraft in digital asset prices. Reports say crypto brokerage Genesis is attempting to line up emergency funding. A lot of fears that it might be forced into bankruptcy. The CEO of Binance, the giant crypto exchange, telling our Anna Stewart that turbulence in the space is possible. There will be some contagion uh, potentially, but we're not, we're not the lender of last resort. We don't print money. We're not like a central bank. You do rescue a lot of firms, though. Using our own balance, well, using our own money. We have a, we have a strong um, uh, war chest, but it's, it's not like we can print unlimited amount of money like the central bank. 
Um, so, but there could be some uh, uh, contingent um, effects. Uh, whenever one player goes down, they could, uh, other players could have money on there um, or get negatively affected. But usually, when one large player goes down, uh, the contagion, each, each, each uh, contagion effect gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Anna Stewart joins us now. And I can't wait to hear that full conversation. Um, but it is quite fascinating, him talking about contagion effect. I think a lot of people in the industry know that we've had these downdrafts before and they lose, the sector loses around two-thirds of its value, it bounces back. Um, the difference, I think, today is that the broader backdrop is weaker. Other markets are falling. It feels different. Yeah, and I think I'm going to lose count of the number of times people have told me this crypto winter is fast becoming a crypto ice age. Mm. Uh, and certainly people that go against crypto and don't really like the whole crypto story uh, point to this as being an example of the end of Bitcoin. That's certainly not what I hear from the likes of CZ, I have to say. But I think what we're looking at here is all of the big exchanges, Binance, of course, being at the top, but many others, having to come out and defend themselves, having to defend whether they are exposed to the fallout of FTX, but also having to defend their liquidity positions. Have they got enough liquidity? Can they uh, accept the withdrawal of all of their assets if customers wanted to do so? The CZ, the CEO of Binance, told me that if every single customer wanted to take their money out of Binance, they could. And Binance is profitable and would survive. These are all the questions that people want. Trust is thin on the ground. I thought it was very interesting looking at the share price of Coinbase. This being, you know, a company that is listed. It is headquartered in the U.S. It is regulated. But look at the share price and how it has suffered just over the last couple of weeks and certainly over the last month, down almost 40 percent at this stage. There is a complete destruction of trust. And I just don't know how long it will take to really see that come back. I think we have to see where this contagion effect ends, probably. Julia? Yeah, it's a great point. We spoke to the Coinbase CEO last week and, and he was saying that we disclose a lot of things. We also spoke to one of the um, five commissioners at the SEC, Hester Pierce, and she was saying there's a lot more we can do even without regulation. And that's about transparency. And But I think you raise a great point, which is how do you separate the good from the bad? Even for someone like Caesar that's saying that we'll give money to support the good. How do you isolate which is good and bad in this kind of environment? Well, it's really hard. And what you have here is CZ, the CEO of the world's biggest crypto exchange, saying he will create this industry fund. But currently, that has got one member, I believe, which is Binance. And so firms that are in trouble will go to the Binance Venture Capital uh, Unit and ask for help, and they will decide which one's good and which one's bad. For a retail investor, it's incredibly hard to know who you can trust with your money. But I think, if anything, the fallout of, F of FTX has really shown us where things are getting kind of complicated, which is when you have a custodian who is also a lender, who is also an exchange. And when they are unregulated, when these firms are based offshore, very difficult to know how much liquidity they really have and how safe your money is. Speaking yeah. to people in the industry, I don't know where this story goes. I think in terms of individual private investors, getting your money off exchanges, if you don't know how safe it is, is a good idea, having a wallet. Yeah, don't, don't assume this is a bank and that your, uh, your assets are, are protected or insured, because they're not. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.